full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You suddenly have 125,000 people who are aimed at one city, Miami. And the surprise of the boat lift is even though the huge majority of people who are coming over are very typical immigrants for America, inside the 125,000 there are also 4,000 people taken from the Cuban criminal system. And that includes everything from rapists to murderers to you name it. So all of those people end up on the streets of Miami. And that is roughly the amount of felonious people who will be on any city the size of Miami. So basically Miami's criminal population doubles in size almost overnight. 1980 in Miami. Race riots, cocaine cowboys, an overflowing morgue, overflowing banks, overwhelming corruption, versus the handful of iconoclasts who fought back. The book is the year of dangerous days, riots, refugees, and cocaine in Miami, 1980. Here with the author, Nicholas Griffin. Please stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Follow on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio and find us soon on the radio dial in Northern Virginia and much of D.C. on WERA 96.7 FM. Joining me from South Florida is Nicholas Griffin, author of The Year of Dangerous Days, Riots, Refugees, and Cocaine in Miami, 1980. A subject very near and dear to my heart, sir, after uh, three years ago I published (laughs) Hotel Scarface, which covered uh, the same failed state situation that Miami became in the late 70s and early 80s. I love this book. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Well, let me start with the jump ball of 1980 Miami. Uh, As you yourself noted uh, at the end of the book, there's no paucity of of books and articles and features and uh, interviews, even a BBC 13-part series written on uh, Miami at the turn of that decade. Why are we still drawn back to what happened there 40 years ago? Probably because we haven't solved much. Uh, but I think the the real answer is is that I think a lot of things that the rest of America was about to deal with landed in Miami first, and our successes and failures and how we dealt with those things uh, are worth revisiting. Uh, I think for odd reasons we we keep going back above all things to the cocaine trade. That seems to be the one that's always collected the most. Uh, attention both from Hollywood and from writers and magazine articles and everything else. But I think the other two themes of the book, you know, my book is basically divided between drugs, race and immigration. I think race and immigration are also those two of those giant American problems that we're still dealing with 40 years later. Now, as we know, Miami, for much of its history, it was uh, almost 100 years old by then, was a sleepy terminus of the Sun Belt, very Anglo. But then a couple of peculiar things happened, specifically in 1980. Uh, um, You talk about the butterfly effect of history almost, is an unarmed black motorist gets bludgeoned to death by police officers. You have uh, one uh, dissident in Cuba decides to run his bus through the Peruvian embassy and cause a a boat lift, a flotilla of 125,000 Cubans that arrived in Miami. You had an election season. You had the cocaine economy inundate South Florida's Federal Reserve with a multi-billion dollar surplus. Uh, Those particular ingredients had to combust together for this to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's an amazing coincidence in some ways of, of things that seemed unconnected, but there were connections lurking in the background, and those things did affect one another. For instance, that surge of money you're talking about, the very t- first two institutions that money pushed up against were the Miami's banking institutions and the Miami law enforcement community, naturally. Uh, and what that does when when that money hits the law enforcement community. The first, the first place it rots out is the ho- county homicide department. And what happens is the FBI launch an investigation in late '79. In the spring of 1980, they're cleaning house in the county homicide department to the point where, at the moment when you're about to have the greatest ever surge of murder in American history in a city, you also have that homicide department uh, reduced by a third of the people are either fired or let go, uh, and basically everyone of any kind of experience is let go. So the captain of the homicide department has exactly three detectives left with more than one year's experience just when you need the most. So there is this bizarre interconnection between some of these events. Start with law enforcement. Law enforcement, the median salary of a starting police officer at the you know Miami Public Safety Department or whatever was Metro Dade, the predecessor of kind of county police back then, 
compared to, say, the economics of a cocaine bribe or how liquid some of these dealers, even pot dealers, you you know, th- this stuff was transacted in cash. They were always looking for, for palms to grease, whether they were uh, unscrupulous bank managers or law enforcement officers or judges. Uh, just there was really no chance for uh, uh, officers out there who were amenable kind of to the siren call of, of drug riches. Yeah, I think if you looked, certainly if you looked at that homicide department, it pretty much brushed up against everyone. And I would, you know, if, if that was typical, then you could say that it had about a 33% success rate of people who would take the money because the discrepancy in earnings was just enormous. So as you mentioned, a cop in the late 70s starting salary in Miami-Dade was about $10,000 a year, uh, while a lookout if you were on the end of a, of a big cocaine trade in one day, uh, you could earn exactly the same amount of money. So <laughs> for a lot of people, it, was, uh, it wasn't much of a choice. It, it was just an obvious gamble to take. And, and plenty of people got away with it. And plenty of people got away with it for months and some for years and some to this day. Uh, so there, there were certainly opportunities. You illustrated the uh, the story of kind of this infamous money launderer Isaac Catan from a uh, actually a, a Sephardic Jewish family in Colombia. This was a very businesslike person in Brickell. He kept an office in broad daylight in the old uh, Dupont Plaza Hotel, where the mayor of Miami kind of kept a family business office. <laughs> but you describe Isaac Catan in the spring of 1980. If I can read from the book, in the spring of 1980, there were many more urgent ways for the U.S. to allocate resources than to start tracking the business dealings of a portly financier. Uh, Catan could legally fly into the country with dollars he had supposedly acquired from American tourists in Colombia, as long as he declared the amount to customs. In 1979, he carried $90 million into or out of New York and Miami. For the moment, Catan could be forgiven for thinking that his 1980 was going to be as untroubled as the previous year, when he'd personally laundered over $300 million for cocaine traffickers. His own income in 1979, at a time when the CEO of Chevrolet made $1.6 million, was estimated at $28 million, making him perhaps the highest paid middleman in the United States. And what's amazing to me, as you illustrated in the book, intentionally or not, this is all really blending into the mundane finance of the city. I mean, it was a sleepy skyline back then, but you always had a downtown Miami with an unusual number of banks for the the lack of industry that was there. Yeah, and part of that was done at a very decent, uh, at, you know, at a really high-minded level. The the idea behind all of this was that that Miami could be the sort of service sector and connecting point and legitimate connecting point between North and South America, and that's something that had, that certain people within the community had been working on for years. So one of the things that actually pushed to do was create was open Miami to Edge Act banking, which was basically a way for non-state actors uh, to bring you know legitimate banks, entirely legitimate banks, into the Miami area so they could have their money close to the action where they wanted to put it in Latin America, but have the protection of American financial institutions. So in a way, it was all set up beautifully. But what no one thought was the very first people to take advantage of all of this was the cocaine industry. Uh, and, you know, in a way, they were everything that Miami wanted to happen to Miami. They were a really successful, fresh new business, all about vertical integration and all about using Miami as a sort of capital for their capital uh, inside the United States. The, pro- the only problem was it wasn't it, it wasn't legitimate. I'd like to quote again from the book, uh, The Year of Dangerous Days on Miami in 1980 said, the extent of South Florida's contamination by cocaine was remarkable because the contagion had been caused by so few people. Uh, The immigrants from the Mariel Boatlift were measured in the tens of thousands, you wrote in 1980. Illegal Colombians in the narcotics industry were never more than a few hundred, often arriving with impeccable fake passports, occasionally deported, often returning within days in unregistered boats or private aircraft. The Dade County State Attorney's Office intuited the effect. The limited number of Colombians hadn't annexed South Florida, but in under two years, they have made it a free trade zone where they conducted their business, their travel, and their crimes as if American law didn't exist. And I'm struck, actually, in, in going back and thinking about it, in that you 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 intimately you know dealt with the late, the late mayor, Maurice Ferre, who had inherited all these things. He was a diplomat. He tried to triangulate between D.C. and, and Latin America and the various um, antipodal constituencies of, of Miami. 
you had a a love hate relationship if you're the uh, you know the, the the leaders of this city with all that cocaine money, and it's not like you could just withdraw it and the city could continue. The, the economy ran on this money. Yeah, to, to a great extent, it did, and not only that, but you know, as as steeped as Miami was in cocaine in 1980, you have to remember that that, that same situation had happened to not one but two countries to the south, both Bolivia and Colombia, and the, their institutions were already rotting away well ahead of Miami's. So what that meant was you also got entirely legitimate flight capital on the run, and where was it coming? It was coming to exactly the same city, Miami, uh, as as the drug money. So you have this amazing combination of good flight capital, bad cocaine money and local local money all mixing together in this one sort of big gray mess uh, that starts to help to build you know the, the skyline you see today in Miami. I want to get to the situation in Cuba. And again, the particular uh, ingredients of combustibility here, it is an election year. People do forget that, that uh, Ronald Reagan's candidacy wasn't all that seriously considered as recently as 1979. It was a, a funky time for the country. The economy is in torpor. You had the hostage crisis by 1980. Uh, South Florida then, as now, was a swing state, and that informed many of the things that Carter did and didn't do in terms of this situation with Cuba. Walk me back to the situation with Cuba starting in April. Uh, what happened? Explain for our listeners. I mean, you, you go through the TikTok in the book beautifully, but it's almost like the mouse that roared. It turned out to be a, an immigrant who, who stormed, if you will, and caused an international incident. Sure, sure. It was a it was a sort of man of slight disrepute, a Cuban who you know of you know no great regard, uh, who gathered a small group of people in a bus one day who were also equally dissatisfied. He didn't want to try and get out in a boat because he was terrified of water. So he thought what he would do is drive a bus through the gates and claim uh, immunity uh, according to the Vienna Convention inside the Peruvian embassy, which is what he did in Havana. In Havana. In, sorry, in Havana. Yeah. So he does that. He slams his his, his bus through the gates. Uh, a guard is killed by another guard accidentally as they as they drive through the gates. And Castro, in a fit of fury, rather than uh, keep guarding the embassy, throws open the gates to the Peruvian embassy and says, "If that's what you guys really want, then anyone who wants to leave Cuba can leave Cuba." And it was sort of almost this slightly bizarre dare. And to his to Castro's horror, within a couple of days, there are 10,000 people pressed into the embassy and they have to stop people from coming in because people, you know, obviously not all Cubans are happy in Cuba. Uh, whether or not Castro realized it till that moment, it was very obvious by the middle of April. So then you have this question of what can Castro do to turn this from really a, you know, a, a horrific situation for him, a real international embarrassment, which is playing out on the papers of the world every day, into an embarrassment for Jimmy Carter. So how does he do that? He doesn't negotiate with Carter, who's willing to take a few thousand immigrants and help place them around the region. Uh, he just calls up uh, the sort of unofficial group of Cuban-Americans in Miami and says, by the way, all those relatives who I haven't let you have for 20 years, if you come here and pick up uh, the dissidents from, from the Peruvian embassy, I'll give you your family as well. So it literally happens overnight and with very, you know, with the, has nothing to do with the U.S. Navy, has nothing to do with the Coast Guard. You basically get a thousand Cuban-Americans and a thousand boats heading over within 48 hours with plenty more coming behind them. And you get the beginning of this highly disorganized uh, crush of a boat lift that takes place in a really short amount of time. You suddenly have 125,000 people who are aimed at one city, Miami. And the surprise of the boat lift is even though the huge majority of people who are coming over are very typical immigrants for America, inside the 125,000, there are also 4,000 people taken from the Cuban criminal system. And that includes everything from rapists to murderers to you name it. So all of those people end up on the streets of Miami. And that is roughly the amount of felonious people who will be on any city the size of Miami. So basically, Miami's criminal population doubles in size almost overnight. Why the animus between Havana and the Carter administration? If anything, I thought that Jimmy Carter was blowing kisses toward Havana when he was elected. He didn't have it in his blood to kind of continue the Cold War standoff of, of prior administrations. Uh, why did it come to such a head in 1980? Jimmy Carter didn't induce anybody to storm the embassy in Peru. No, there, there had been, you know, it's that old, you know, Castro always seems to do the same thing where, where it's sort of a bit... 
kissy kissy and friendly and yeah we might be willing to, to you know come to terms and then and then as soon as there does seem to be an opportunity uh great offense is taken at some point and 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 we end up back back where we were in this case carter had helped uh negotiate or at least approve uh, they'd open the special interest section there and and uh a deal was made where where a bunch of uh, dissidents were going to get uh accepted into the United States and those those visas were supposed to be processed really quickly. I think they were supposed to be done at three or four hundred a month and they were being done at 30 a month. So Castro was re- deeply unhappy about that. He was deeply unhappy about war games off, off the coast of Guantanamo Bay. Uh, and so the, those, I think, in the end, I think Castro overreacted and he regretted things at the end of the year because he starts trying to lobby for Carter against Reagan once he realizes that, you know, Reagan's going to be a much tougher man to deal with than Carter. But, you know, Castro was also in a pinch. It had been a very bad year for the Cuban economy. He'd lost his great love of his life at the beginning of the year. Uh, it, was a, it was a very strange... There were some... The oddest things that Castro has ever done were done in, in the spring of 1980. Now, Nicholas, I, I didn't appreciate to the extent that there were kind of two shadow governments in Miami behind Maurice Ferre, who participated in your book. He was Puerto Rican, but was very well respected in the Carter administration, had had the buy-in from uh, the, the different demographics in Miami. But Castro could himself call a back channel of Cuban-American leaders in Miami who on the surface, hated the guy, and on top of that, get into this business working group that Maurice Ferre was part of, the non-group. I mean, what's amazing is like the shadow and persona going on to me is that you think that you're completely equipped as a mayor who has a close friend in Washington, D.C. to handle this, to liaise with the Coast Guard and the State Department and INS. But in fact, Fidel Castro was working a back channel of informal diplomacy. Yeah, to- totally informal. And that's sort of the way Miami is set up. It's it's a really bizarre setup down here. It exists to this day. We have both a city and a county government. The county government's much larger. But, you know, if you say I'm the mayor of Miami, you tend to get uh, a lot further than if you say I'm the county mayor. The presumption's sort of the other way around, which sort of gave Ferre this, this sort of, he was almost like a secretary of state barreling around the region. Uh, and of course, as he said, he had these amazing ties straight into Carter's White House, which he used to visit every other week. Uh, but that that meant that the county and the city were often really at odds. Uh, the power was sort of shared and sort of shared unevenly. Uh, but then behind that, you have this thing called a non-group, where, which you could argue was the real power in Miami, which was basically this unofficial group that didn't really exist, but it involved all men. Uh, it was the highest earning and most powerful men in Miami would sit around the tables and discuss earnestly Miami's deepest issues. They weren't, you know, this wasn't some awful cabal of men trying to, to you know, bend Miami to suit their evil needs. The, these were concerned citizens hoping to help do the right thing. Uh, but, you know, this is not a democratically elected group, uh, but, you know, it includes the owner of uh, the CEO of the largest newspaper company in Miami, the largest bank. You know, they have a lot of power to exercise. And then, as you said, there's this other group as well they called the Group of 75, which is sort of this unofficial group of Cuban-Americans who, who have established themselves as a way to deal unofficially with Havana. So you've got all these different power structures going on and everyone's sort of doing things and everyone has a certain amount of power and they certainly have the power to get things rolling. They may not have the power to push things through in any legitimate way. So the, what, once the Mariel Boatlift starts, the problem is, it's a problem for our own federal government. Uh, you know, in a way, it should never have started in the first place. But there was just enough power to get that ball rolling. But then, the, then that means that ball now rolls into Carter's court. And what's he going to do? Well, he kept flip-flopping the entire spring. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Nicholas Griffin, author of The Year of Dangerous Days, Riots, Refugees, and Cocaine in Miami, 1980. Uh, full disclosure is I really love this book. Evan Osnos of The New Yorker said, like Eric Larson's The Devil in the White City, engrossing, morally serious, and artful in the best ways. Uh, we have to rewind a little bit to December of 1979 and the killing of an unarmed black motorist, an insurance salesman, Arthur McDuffie. It's amazing that this name, among the many others, uh, over the past 40 years of police brutality, you talk about obviously uh, the situation now, but with 
Rodney King, uh, the William Lozano trial in Miami in the late 80s. This was national news. Everybody was covering it. The National Guard came in. Uh, The city was on fire after uh, a miscarriage of justice, apparently, uh, following the, the killing of this motorist in 1979. Introduce us to Arthur McDuffie. Sure. Arthur McDuffie, he's 33 years old at the time. He's been a Marine, honorably discharged. He served on an aircraft carrier. He has, he's not a Vietnam vet like so many of the Marines, but, but he's a Miami, you know, he, he's, he's lived in Miami a long time. Uh, he's a father of three. He's, he's uh, an ex-husband who's trying to become, who's trying to remarry his wife, uh, but maybe having an affair on the side. And one night, uh, he's over at the potential girlfriend's house. Uh, he he's supposed to be back to take care of his kids. He's running a little late. Uh, he's woken up and he jumps on his motorbike and uh, you know tries to get home quickly. Now there's some arguments about what happens. Does he roll a stop sign? Does he pop a wheelie? Does he give a finger to a cop? Are the three excuses that were then given by the police to why they started chasing him. But either way. A police chase starts at around 1.45 in the morning, uh, and McDuffie goes up to about 100 miles an hour, and this goes on for eight minutes, which is a really long time for a police chase in, in a sort of urban setting. It's not on a highway. And by the time McDuffie does the smart and right thing and pulls over on an overpass, he's been followed not only by 15 police cars, he's been followed by 15 police cars from two different police departments, the county and the city. And uh, he's dragged off the back of his bike after supposedly shouting, I give up. Uh, And he is beaten. And he's beaten so badly uh, that his head blows up to the size of a basketball. Uh, He's he's rushed to hospital. Uh, The police on the scene then try and cover up the scene. And he stays in a coma for three to four days before he dies. And in theory, it was the police had said that this was a motorcycle crash and that nothing had really happened. Uh, and then someone places a call to a, a, one of, you know, one of the great all time crime reporters in, in Florida, Edna Buchanan. And that sets off this chain of events where, where, you know, she's determined to get to the truth of what had really happened. What was devastating was uh, uh, his fiance, his ex-wife, who was planning to remarry. She was on duty as a nurse's aide when McDuffie, uh, just in awful, awful condition, was transported within an inch of his life to Jackson Memorial Hospital. The coroner's report said that he had suffered multiple skull fractures. Later, uh, the, the same coroner, who was a major uh, character in the book, said that this, this head was cracked like an egg. I mean, it was an unusual amount of uh, violence, uh, and, and especially everything else they did with the motorcycle and running metal along it to, to make it look like... Uh, that this was a, a melee and a scuffle and they had to subdue him. And I'm still struck by that scene of when they're slicing out uh, part of the overpass to kind of investigate this belatedly as the city is being inundated with tens of thousands of Mariel refugees. Uh, this was a, a, a truly, truly treacherous time. I mean, everything was about to blow up. A lot was contingent upon the, the trial, which would happen uh, later that spring, and the results would come in in, in May 17th. And, and by then, the city absolutely blew up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was an extraordinary, you know, confluence of events. And, you know, you mentioned uh, his the coincidence of his wife being on the very hospital he's, he's taken into on working on shift that night when he's brought in. Well, the other strange coincidence was that one of his oldest friends had become the public information officer of the police department whose own members are those accused of beating McDuffie to death. So that man, Lonnie Lawrence, finds himself in the situation where he, you know, he knows very well what has happened to his friend after the Miami Herald start running these reports and interviewing people and certainly as the trial develops. And yet he's got to get out there in public and defend the very officers who've beaten one of his best friends to death. Uh, so things like that. And and you also mentioned May 17th. So that's the day when, when the... the uh, results of the trial come in and every single officer is acquitted, even though they know McDuffie was murdered. Uh, basically, the attorneys cannot pin the killing blow on any one officer. And that sort of leads to, to this general acquittal. But on that very same day, during the Mariel boat lift, it's the greatest numbers of death in the with the sinking of a boat uh, and people people drowning in the Florida, Florida Straits. So for me, if you ask me what's the worst day in the history of Miami, that's easy. It's, it's May 17th, 1980. 
And you wrote in the book, after the trial began, you could pick up the Spanish language press, the black newspaper, and the Miami Herald in the same week and assume you were reading papers from three different cities. El Miami Herald focused on the Peruvian embassy, the Miami Times on McDuffie, the Miami Herald headlined the struggling economy, the primary season, and the slow motion drama of the Iranian hostages. Uh, one editor's trial coverage and Mariel were moving toward the center of the paper. I wonder in speaking to Maurice Ferret, and even Jimmy Carter is still alive. I mean, he just turned 96. If you could go back to them and say, what would you have done differently? Could you have staunched the flow? I mean, it's it's so impossible to multitask while you're trying to figure out the humanitarian crisis over the waters, the camp cities, the tent cities you're setting up in Miami, processing people, the same homicide rate uh, from Latin on Latin violence, the overwhelmed coroner. What could they have maybe stuck a thumb into. This is what I, I, I wonder. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and again, it's an election year and you don't want to, you don't want to risk, you know, annoying the Cuban-American community. I mean, ask Al Gore about Elian Gonzalez in 2000. I mean, the history certainly rhymes. What what did Maurice Ferre tell you in kind of, you know, shaking his head that we could have done this differently? No, I think, you do, I think he always thought of the, the local response, both from the city and the county, were actually kind of extraordinary. And certainly the way Cuban-Americans began by taking care of their own was also extraordinary. And that's basically the only game in town until FEMA arrive a couple of weeks in. FEMA at this point is just months old. So this, I think, is the first big uh, FEMA test. I don't think there's been anything huge before this. Uh, and, you know, they do what, what FEMA have sort of become famous for doing. They wade in, uh, they accidentally insult absolutely everyone who's been, you know, sleeping maybe two hours a night trying, trying to get a city under control on behalf of the federal government. Uh, and they really mess things, mess things up to begin with. In the end, yes, the federal help does, does come and it does help a lot. And if you actually ask those from Marielle themselves, the refugees, they're immensely grateful for A, being allowed into the country and, and B, for any help they got after that, even though even if it took them two or three years to to find their feet, you know, get their jobs, housing, schools, all the rest of it. Uh, but yes, it's a time of immense, immense chaos on, on almost every front. Uh, so what could have been done different from a federal level? A, I would have said they, they could have responded quicker with Marielle and they could have found the line to stick to and stick to it from the outset. Instead, having mixed messages every day, sometimes that when, when Carter, after in early June, suddenly said, you know, in theory, the boat lift, he just ordered it stopped. And then the next day he was at a luncheon trying to raise money. And, and he said, we would, we would welcome refugees with open arms and open hearts. And then suddenly another uh, flotilla of boats go out to Havana to take, take back another whole gang of refugees. So messaging like that was simply awful. Uh, some things I think he got surprisingly right, like uh, letting the Treasury Department send down that first team of Operation Greenback, which is going to try and understand the cocaine industry. The only issue, my only issue with it, with that was, in theory, that was an operation which was going to comprise of the IRS, Customs, FBI, and DEA. The problem is FBI and DEA never show up. They, it takes them, takes DEA eight months to show up, and the FBI never show up at all. Uh, you know, someone you needed a, a rod that year to beat people into place at a federal level, and and Carter wasn't firm enough. Now, behind curtain number three, of course, is the cocaine economy and Isaac Catan, the prolific uh, Colombian money launderer, going about his business in, in in nice shirts and ties and Brickell Avenue, decidedly nonviolent person driving from one location to another, winking at, at tellers to meet him in the back, uh, sending various middlemen. Uh, can you explain the mechanics of how this money was laundered? So cocaine, yes, it's a cash business, overwhelmingly cash. $50,000 yeah. kilos in 1980, left and right. Once they're stepped on and cut, you're talking about $100,000 kilos. Once it goes down the supply chain, several hundred thousand dollars could be extruded uh, in terms of value added from a kilo. How is this cash then processed? Clearly, you know, you can't just open a pizzeria and and report hundreds of millions of dollars of, of earnings every couple of years. How would they have done it? Yeah, and that's Catan's great challenge in, in 1980 is that the better business is, the larger your Achilles heel is because that Achilles heel is the weight of cash. And unless you have the banks lined up who are willing uh, to, to take your money in, uh, then you've got a real problem on your hands. And every time you do get one of these uh, sort of blockages in the system, 
you would literally have cash building up at such a high rate that you could have apartments that are actually full of cash or houses. And and Catan actually kept, I think it's four or five apartments around town always. Uh, and in bad months, those things would actually begin to fill up. Uh, so what he would do is he would go, he would find sort of uh, sort of nudge nudge wink wink banks, if you will, from that very first. Uh, look by the feds in the middle of 1980, they immediately find 26 banks in Miami who are all willing to look the other way and take in these, you know, very obviously illegal but what, exp- deposits. Explain for our listeners how you do that, even if you come in the back door at night, even if they have cash counting machines, even if you're personally putting hundreds in the palms of the bank manager or the teller, what is then done with that cash to kind of, you know, either turn it to a legitimate electron to wire back overseas or... Uh, to, to kind of, you know, we know the dirty money comes in the door. What's coming out that makes it look clean or makes it look legitimate? For Catan, uh, you know, it seems extraordinary, but the, he's basically getting these uh, cashier's checks. So, you know, he would walk in with, with you know, uh, four duffel bags full of a million dollars in 20s and 50s and 100s, and he'd walk out five hours later after the counting's done with maybe a dozen cashier's checks. Uh, and the game that's played is basically that in Colombia... Uh, you have, you know, his the cartels uh, who who want to get their money back home because that's where their businesses are and that's where their expenses are. But then you also have this bizarre situation where where legitimate Colombi- Colombian businesses have really strict uh, uh, exchange controls, uh, which are forced on them. So they're looking as a way to find U.S. dollars. Uh, inside the United States for their for their cash necessities. So Catan is sort of playing that game between them and taking a piece off either end, and there's, the money is sort of moving slowly back and forth, or when he gets very sophisticated towards the end of the year, then we're talking electrons uh, once, he, once he gets in with, uh, with investment banks. But, but you know, it's, it's, it's a terrifying game for him because there's this awful period of time for the money launderers because they're responsible for the money from the moment it lands in their lap as, as cash and then the, until that moment when either the electron or the cash itself has landed back in, in the hands of the cartel. And you can imagine that's that sort of pressure. Of course, it was always personal with the Colombian drug runners that if you were a pilot busted at Opalaca Airport, you know, with a load, that your family was always held over your head. It's something that, in addition, that it was unthinkable that you would talk to the cops almost preemptively. Uh, something would be done or family members would be held in Colombia. How was, was Catan different? I mean, he had he was effectively the central banker of, of import the global central banker of Colombia in Miami doing business in a parallel central bank in Miami. So he was busted. On, on, I, I remember this scene along Biscayne Boulevard, and he very quietly gave up, and he, he helped the feds. It was an enormous snag for the feds. Yeah, the feds were very uh, kid, kid glove in a way. They used kid gloves with him, which sort of almost surprising in retrospect. They had this uh, enormous leverage against him because – you know, in those days, there were no money laundering laws. So the worst you could get if, if you know, you applied all the laws you had in your pocket against him was five years, which, frankly, you know, anyone would be willing to do standing upside down if they're, if they're protecting whatever it is, $100 million in their bank accounts elsewhere. But in Catan's case, as you know, he was actually caught with, with cocaine in the back of his in the back of his car, uh, and enough to put him away for 20 years. So they had this extraordinary leverage, but they also knew very well what would happen uh, to his family back in back in Cali uh, if he talked and, and named names. So they didn't actually pressure him to name names. The deal was he just had to walk them uh, through the machinations of his business. You know, but he would he would then be as good as dead. If word got out that he's there, I mean, what what is the upshot for him? Witness protection? You're not going to be sent back to Colombia. Your family in Colombia is at risk. He never gave up names, so no one ever, as far as I know, there were no repercussions for for his family. Uh, you know, he's he he served his time. He goes out and and goes back to Colombia, uh, but but he never named names. Did you meet him personally? No, he died about ten years ago. And so there were people willing to talk in Colombia to connect the dots for you, because I thought that was one of the more elusive things is a, a great first person profile participated with, with Isaac Catan after he served his time. 
Yeah, no, I would. I mean, how much would I have loved to have, to have met and sat down with him? And I would also say that of all the jobs I had to do as far as researching the different angles of this book, by far the hardest was getting people within the Sephardic Jewish community in, in Kali and Bogota to, to sit down with me and, and talk. So I actually had to hire a Colombian journalist uh, to get, go and do some of that for me. Uh, but I would say she had some success, but relatively limited. I want to read again from the book in chapter 21, The Year of Dangerous Days. The different tribes of Miami were digesting the bitterness of May 1980 and formulating responses, groping toward a consensus. Black Miami had nothing to build on. On the one hand, they had burned their largest neighborhood to the ground. On the other, they were asking for help to rebuild it, make it better, more robust than before by addressing the underlying problems of poverty and unemployment. Cuban Americans now had an entire new population to take care of. By June, between the Mariel boat lift and the steady stream of Haitians arriving in the Keys, Miami had received what equaled a third of its own population in six weeks. It was the rough equivalent of having Providence, Rhode Island dropped into Dade County, only without any provisions for housing, schools, or jobs. <laughs> that is a national crisis. That is something that obviously it ended up on President Reagan's, you know, desk in the first hundred days, and it ended up on the front of Time magazine. But I, I, I'm amazed in my research and in your research and going back and seeing how slowly, in slow mo, this happened. That a city was allowed itself to kind of to kind of get played like that. Yeah, well, I don't. They didn't have that much option. Uh, but you know, I think two things help that situation happen. One's, of course, that it's an election year and, and Carter already had his plate full and there was this sort of that ticking clock of days that, with the Iranian hostage crisis and then Marielle on top of that. Uh, so, you know, he didn't want to deal with Miami. That was very obvious when he comes down to Miami in June and, and basically makes zero promises. Uh, and there's very little federal relief that's given to to the areas where these huge riots happened. And I think the other thing that, that helped wash it, you know, wash it under the, sweep it under the carpet, was that this is a tourist town. And still, you know, no matter how much Maurice Ferre, the mayor, wanted to turn it into a thriving financial uh, bridge between North and, and South America, it was still needed its tourist dollars. So, so, you know, the quicker it cleaned up its image, the better for everyone. Domestic tourism, of course, was hugely hit in 1980. But, you know, for international tourism, Miami still relies mostly on Latin America. And in Latin America, everything was relative. And so no matter how bad things were in Miami, it was still seen as, as you know, an American city with American institutions and hopefully a safe place for your family and for your money. And relatively speaking, it probably was. Uh, Nicholas Griffin, by the end of 1980 and certainly into 1981, Miami is uh, is on a glide path to becoming murder capital of the hemisphere, if not the world. If you already had the Colombian on Colombian kind of gang violence on the turnpike, Dadeland Mall, in the backs of cars, in uh, you, you so graphically illustrated in boxes, just bodies showing up everywhere. And then the, the, the medical examiner talking about the, the rate of Wando murderers, just uh, Latin on Latin crime, Marielle refugees with, with petty grievances, some that they brought from the prisons. The murder rate skyrockets uh, in 1981. And then you throw in the other variable of a demoralized and depleted uh, police department. And you really had to have extraordinary, almost existentialist people to kind of put a dent in this murder rate, especially, and I know this is a lot of information, Colombians were just so good at covering their tracks of, of, of never leaving a paper trail, of making it vexingly hard to keep anybody there and build a case against murderous elements. Yeah. I mean, the, the Colombians were, you know, they would come in, they often had, uh, you know, they'd, they'd figured out that Americans found it very hard to deal with, with the last names and the patronyms and the matronyms. So, so they would, they would, you know, be one thing in one county registry, another and another. They had multiple driving licenses. They all had connections uh, to the best lawyers in town. Uh, all of those lawyers were on cash retainers. Uh, so, so it was, you know, it's not until the very end of 1980 that they finally have a one conviction of a Colombian hitman. And sure enough, a year later, that man sprung, sprung from prison anyway. So it really felt like this frustrating losing war. Uh, because, you know, all these poor homicide detectives who, who signed up to, to deal with their county weren't dealing with a the county. They were dealing with crime waves from two additional countries 
uh, in addition to their own. So, you know, it's just a crazy situation. And on top of that, the majority of them certainly didn't speak Spanish, and you're basically dealing with, with crimes and, and that were taking place in another language. So you talk about the book, uh, you know, characters that we had in common, Raul Diaz, uh, the head of the special task force, Sentac, Al Singleton, Blade Singleton, uh, his now wife, June Hawkins, who uh, people who, who who stepped in and said, you know, to quote Raul in a conversation he had with me is you, you never could cook an omelet without cracking eggs. And <laughs> you almost had to become borderline extrajudicial to get anything to happen. If, you know, in, to, in terms of Washington, D.C. being completely distracted, the Justice Department, the state attorney, I mean, the, the never-ending files of homicides, of, of money laundering, everything else going on, you kind of had to become an Old West vigilante-type sheriff to, 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 to land any of these murderers. Yeah, and, and as you know, that's, that's pretty much what happens, that you have this creation of this thing called... Uh, of Sentac, and and you know, which is basically combining local inf- law enforcement with sort of DEA, uh, and straight into with with the prosecutors, and it has this amazing uh, effect early on, where where you know I can't remember their cleanup rate is well over a hundred percent, which is justified by when when you clean up one murder, and then the guy who's in for that murder suddenly confesses to four other cold cases, and then suddenly you've got over a hundred percent clearance, while the clearance rate in 1980 for the county homicide was under or right around 50%, which was frankly pathetic uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, You know, it couldn't have been a more challenging year. Uh, But yeah, Sentac came in and they cut corners, they broke rules, uh, and they did what they had to do uh, to really put some very bad people away. But of course, that also ruffled a lot of feathers. So how long was Sentac at its absolute most effective? Uh, not as long as it should have been, and could they have been, you know, a lot more effective? Yes, they probably could have been, uh, but you know, still an amazing thing to have got, got got up and running. And it had something of that, you know, it was approved during, at the beginning of the Reagan administration, and it had something of that sort of old west gunslinging machismo about it. You know, before I, I, I get into the final stretch of the interview, uh, Nicholas Griffin, I have to share one one memory in the book that I can't get out of my head is, was it this Miami Herald editor was prepared to protect his reporters in the newsroom that used to face Biscayne Bay in downtown by pouring vegetable oil down the <laughs> employee ramp in the back? The riot had become so awful, so every man for himself. I remember the scene you described on 62nd in Biscayne. I mean, we're going to get into it. The city has changed so much, but it was truly a failed state. It was truly a city on fire and everyone out for himself in that spring of 1980. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the incident, so when when the riot starts, it starts because the the jury verdict comes in at the worst possible time, which is uh, Saturday afternoon. Uh, in theory, it was a really complex trial. No one was expecting the jury to to return until Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or later. And instead, they took about two hours to make their decision, and they handed it down on Saturday afternoon. So everyone who should be in school is on the streets. Everyone who should be at work is on the streets. And the fury begins really quickly. Uh, and the murders, the first murder, I think, is by sort of 4.35 p.m. And basically all the staff in, in the Herald newsroom, uh, there's a mob not very far away from that. Uh, and people are panicky. Everyone thinks their building's going to be set on fire. And the security guards at, at the Miami Herald are doing the best they can. And their grand idea to save the building is to get these sort of huge cartons of sort of uh, vegetable oil and, and pour them down these slight slopes that surrounded surrounded some of the Herald's entrances, hoping that rioters would slip as they rushed, rushed towards the doors. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a slight comic moment in a night that really had nothing to smile about. Uh, it was a really miserable long, long couple of days. And what happened was that there were huge sections of the city that were basically had no police or National Guard coverage at all. And there was total lawlessness. Uh, and that lasts for, for about two days, during which time about 18 people are, are killed and over $100 million of, of property is burned to the ground, which in 1980 was a pretty big number. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Nicholas Griffin, author of The Year of Dangerous Days, Riots, Refugees, and Cocaine in Miami, 1980. We're talking 40 years ago, and I I don't know, universality, similitude, all the cliches about history rhyming. Uh, George Floyd is the Arthur McDuffie nationally, internationally of 2020. And when I go visit Miami and I see how much the skyline has changed, 
uh, you know, it, it, it's almost comical to look back at Miami skyline in 1980. There were maybe one or two towers. Now there are dozens and dozens of towers, ever taller. Uh, just a, a true world-class destination. The murder rate has at least officially declined to a trickle. Uh, cocaine is still transacted, but nowhere near kind of with the levels of lawlessness that you saw in 1980 and, and shootouts and everything else. But when you talk about uh, the city kind of being donut-like in uh, demography and relative uh, uh, stature, I'm struck by Overtown and Liberty City. And that uh, this goes back to something Maurice Ferre said, is that we'll be talking about this in 1990, and these people will be just as poor and neglected. And indeed, it's the year 2020. And I think relatively, these uh, overwhelmingly historically black and impoverished stretches of Miami have never been as relatively poor to the rest of Miami as they are today. Yeah, and that was certainly true. Uh, there were some early figures during COVID where where unemployment rates in in Overtown Liberty City among young black men were worse than they'd ever been. Uh, but of course, those it's exactly the same neighborhoods that that were set on fire in 1980. Uh, you know, in the wake of in the wake of the riots, the governor at the time, Bob Graham, did his best to pass. Uh, he wanted to finance finance help from from Tallahassee. They were supposed to send down two hundred and eighty eight million dollars, and I think they ended up approving it's either seven or eight million, and those had plenty of ties to them as well. Uh, so there was really, you know, Tallahassee thought that rebuilding those neighborhoods would be seen as a sign of rewarding rioters. You know, that's one argument, but. You know, the real problem was that all of the underlying issues, such as sort of poverty and need and unemployment, those weren't addressed either. So how are these how are these neighborhoods supposed to find their own way out without any help at all? Well, guess what? They haven't. It's 40 years later and not much has changed. And we know that many Cuban-American families, you talk about put the old generations aside, a lot of the refugees who came here in 1980 who were derided went off to create great businesses. We know of one uh, big uh, you know, plant nursery business that was family-owned that came in from the tradition of, of, of uh, you know, the Havana countryside. What's amazing to me, and you and I discussed this offline, is how uh, reactionary-minded uh, much of the immigrant community has become. There's a tremendous amount of support for President Trump, even his immigration policies, and a lot of uh, you know, in my book, some of the some of the prisoners who had served their time, who never had U.S. citizenship, are being deported by the INS. Indeed, the Cuban-born, the biggest cocaine trafficker in U.S. history, was deported to the Dominican Republic. And this is something that I would have thought, going back, the Cuban American community in Miami would have exploded, would have would have completely, you know, torched Trump in effigy. If anything, there's kind of overwhelming acquiescence to that right now. Yeah, it's an it's an odd it's an odd situation. If you live in a city like Miami, uh, you know, and if you do speak Spanish, uh, you begin to realize that that, that these communities are, are really complex, and there's certainly more than one opinion. And back in the days of 1980, uh, it seemed that anti-Castroism was was just the one and only abiding abiding theology right if you if you were on the right side of that argument then you were free to say whatever else you wanted to things have become an awful lot more complicated since then uh i think even you know you see see under the changing laws passed by obama and then by trump as regarding cuba that that you can you can arrive at the same result through two very different ways of thinking uh and i think the other thing is that we tend to look upon other racial groups within our communities as if they're cohesive blocks and they're so obviously not once you jump in the into those into those pools and and have a look but but you know i've seen i've had this argument again and again you often will find especially latin americans who've come through and 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 applied for citizenship legally and done it all the really hard way who then deeply resent uh, anyone who's cut a corner on the on on the way into town and that's you know it's an understandable feeling so you you do get these splinters of of thoughts and if you're anyone who's expecting the latin community in miami to do exactly one thing and one thing only this november is going to be very disappointed you know, I want to state it again because uh, it's so striking. I mean, when you set out to write this book, and I know you must have picked it up and put it down and slimmed it down and, and gone in different directions several times, did you have any idea that 2020 we'd be in a closed <laughs> election, there'd be a, a summer of, of racial unrest nationally, there'd be economic crisis? Again, this is effectively a deep recession, if not a depression. Um, 
But Miami, the backdrop of Miami, I mean, to go back to Maurice Ferre's vision, it's such a different city right now. It's so it's so resilient. There's so much legitimate commerce and all of that cocaine money. I mean, you did have a stat that you said, I think, 400 extra $400 million in sales tax receipts bolstered Dade County out of, uh, you know, the drugs that came to the city just in 1980, you could now take multiples of that. That is all kind of embedded in the skyline and the condo canyons and uh, property and everything else that's, that's happened in Miami. Uh, where, where, what is, the, what is this city? I mean, the few minutes we have left with you, what is it? Is it, is it a metaphor? Is it a cautionary tale? <laughs> is it where the rest of the United States is headed? You know, to take it back to 1980 and where, while we're also ineluctably drawn back to that time. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the problems we have is that when, when we have cities that are sort of tortured publicly, and I think you've seen that now in Portland and Minneapolis, that you get these sort of almost public humiliations that, yeah, that's a big, that might be a bit of an American problem, but guess what? It's not happening in my city. Uh, it's probably coming to your city soon. And that was certainly the reality. There was no other city in America that had three huge race riots in the 80s. Miami was the only one. So, you know, but we were also the first city to, to deal with the triangulation of race. And that's a really complex issue as well. You know, we all, you say race in this country, everyone thinks black against white. Uh, but, you know, obviously in Miami, that's not the way things work. 1980 saw this incredible change in demographics. You know, you had Cuban Americans, you know, about just over a third of the city at the beginning of 1980, and then over half the city at the end of 1980. So there's suddenly a majority, whites are the minority come 1981. But the huge shift is when you get these crises, how do each of those communities react? And what you saw in 1980 was that Latin Americans who felt pretty loosey-goosey about, about taking part in American domestic politics at the beginning of that year uh, realized that by the end of that year, they really better, better get involved or else they, they're going to lose out at the polls, which is what happened because they were registered at only 17% during 1980. When election time came, Miami wasn't officially a bilingual city in 1980, and then that was revoked in November 1980 as a reaction to the Mariel boat lift. And that's a huge slap in the face for what was then Miami's largest community, Cuban-Americans. Uh, so what do they do? They take back power, they register to vote, and by the time the next election comes in 81, there are six Cuban-American mayors running against Maurice Ferre. So I think if there's a lesson for America, it's that you know crises get people involved, and then what happens next is up to them. Mm. Praise for the year of dangerous days. I'm quoting Jonathan Mahler. He's author of the, the bestseller, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Bronx is Burning. This book sinks you into a time and a place while surrounding you with an irresistible cast of characters, from Fidel Castro to the unforgettable cop reporter Edna Buchanan at the Miami Herald. Drug cartels, race riots, Cuban refugees, this book has it all. Combining Florida noir with a literary sensibility makes Nicholas Griffin's story both rollicking and profound. Nicholas Griffin, author of The Year of Dangerous Days, Riots, Refugees, and Cocaine in Miami, 1980. I, I don't feel like it's uh, you know showing my hand too much to tell you that I adore this book and, and putting that out there to the world. It was a very fast read. Uh, it was Im immensely reported. I mean, the granularity of it, the images that are still seared in my head, um, highly recommend my listeners pick it up. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Robin. That's very kind. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. This show airs on NPR One, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts at linkfulldradio.com. Please subscribe and rate us. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Full D Radio. And again, find us soon on the radio dial in Northern Virginia and in D.C. on WERA 96.7 FM. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week.